0: Hello. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Jesse. I am one of the elders here. One of our pastors is on sabbatical this summer, and because of that, each of the elders gets to preach a couple times. So that is why I'm up here. It is exciting. It's one of the great privileges of uh, being an elder at Hiawatha. At least for me, I really enjoy doing this. So, we are currently in the middle of a series, or I guess not in the middle anymore, leisurely approaching the end of a series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are right now in a section we're calling Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. So, we're in Matthew 22 now. Jesus has made it to Jerusalem. He's in the last week of his life before his death and resurrection. And basically, he's spending every day in the temple, uh, teaching people, hanging out with people, answering questions, most of them uh, posed to him by the religious rulers, who are not actually interested in real answers, but are trying to trap him and trick him and uh, show that he's not who he says he is, that he doesn't have authority. So, We're going to start with a little bit of review. Uh, one, in case you haven't been here before, and then two, just for the rest of us. It's, uh, it can be easy when we preach small chunks each week to lose a sense of time in the gospel. And this week's passage and the previous two weeks all take place on the same day. So uh, Jesus has been in the temple, and this is all one day. And so today he's going to be asked a question, and then he's going to ask a question. But the question he's asked today is actually the third question he's been asked in uh, the day where this takes place. So we're going to review the other two, because it will be relevant. So two weeks ago, Jesus was asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Jews at this time, uh, Rome is the government that's over them, so they have this pagan government that's in control of their nation, which is supposedly ruled by God, and there's some conflict in this. They're like, should we be giving money... To this pagan government that wants our money. So uh, they ask him that, and these are just summaries. There's much more that's said, but basically, Jesus' final answer is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give God what belongs to God. Uh, and then last week, he's asked another question by a different group of religious authorities who did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. And so they come up with this ridiculous situation based on the Old Testament law. And they come to Jesus and they're like, okay, so we've got this woman and she marries a guy. And the guy dies. And then by Old Testament law, she has to marry the guy's brother so that that guy's name and uh, family can continue. So she does that. But that guy dies. And there's seven brothers. She marries all of them. They all die. And then finally she dies. So you say there's this resurrection. So in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? She can't be married to all seven because that violates Old Testament laws on incest and on having more than one uh, spouse at a time. But is it just going to be some arbitrary thing? Like you'll just pick one of them? How does that work? And Jesus' response to their question is, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And that idea, he says, you're wrong. You don't understand one that there is a resurrection, that God speaks of that clearly in the scriptures, that he's the God of the living, not of the dead. And then two, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand that the way marriage is now and the way relationships are now, that's not exactly how they're going to be in the resurrection. God's going to bring transformation and change. You are wrong. Uh, So those are the two questions from the previous two weeks. And then this week's, what will it be? We'll find out. So, we'll see what that is. But that's kind of the setting. So they've been uh, coming to him, trying to trick him, trap him. They've asked him these questions. He's answered well, as he always does, being the Son of God. Um, And we'll see what he uh, has to say, what they have to ask him today, and what he has to say. So today's sermon is the greatest question. So, you know, maybe you're sitting out there and you didn't know there was a greatest question. You thought there were just lots of great questions. But there is actually a greatest question. And we'll find out what that is today. And the passage for today is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. So I'll read the passage and then we'll get to it. Matthew 22, 34 through 46. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at your right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who invites questions and that when people come to you with serious questions, seeking serious answers, that you give serious answers. Throughout the Gospels, we see you show great compassion uh, to people who come to you confused about things and asking about things and you answer those things and point people to yourself. But we also see that you're a God that when people come to you with tricky questions trying to trap you, that you get tricky with your answers. And uh, show that you're more tricky than they are. And so, God, I pray this morning that uh, your spirit would be speaking through me as I preach. And I pray that each of us would ask that great question and would consider that answer. Uh, yeah. Pray that uh, through your word this morning, wherever everyone is in this room in their relationship with you, that they'd be drawn closer to you. Uh, those who know you and love you would fall more in love with you. Those who don't know you and are maybe curious about you or don't even think you're real would uh, be moved to ask questions about you. Amen. All right, so we're just going to kind of walk through the passage, start at the beginning, move to the end, take a couple breaks in the middle. So, when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, The view of this uh, that I want you guys to have, to have in mind, so you've got this group, the Pharisees, and they're the religious top dogs, basically. They've got a lot of power and authority among the Jewish people. They're still under Rome's rule, but within the Jewish people, they have a lot of power and authority, and they enjoy that a lot. They enjoy having that. They enjoy being recognized, being uh, uh, delighted in publicly. And this group, they're not coming with this question of, you know, Jesus, there's this thing we don't really understand. Can you explain it? Think of a pack of predators. They're like a pack of predators, and Jesus is their prey. And they've kind of circled up around him, and they're kind of darting in, nipping, trying to find that weak spot so they can go in and attack it and tear Jesus apart. So that's what's happening here. They're just gathered around. They're trying to find, okay, what's Jesus' weak spot? What's the point where we can kind of find, oh, here it is, and then we can just tear him apart there. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So some translations say an expert in the law. Now, the Pharisees, uh, basically their whole lives were spent studying the Old Testament. A lot of them had most of it memorized, and they just didn't memorize the words, but they spent a lot of time asking questions about it. They wrote basically the equivalent of what we would think of as Bible commentaries, although they didn't call them that. They were a little different, but pretty similar. So these were guys who didn't just know the words of the Scripture, but they spent a lot of time thinking about it, discussing it, debating it, asking questions of it. They were really, really familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. So that's the Pharisees in general. And then you have a lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law. So this is not an expert in just legal law in general, but specifically in the Old Testament law. So this is a guy that almost for sure had the entire Old Testament memorized had spent a lot of his life teaching it, uh, asking and responding to questions that people had. Some of them, you know, easier, some pretty difficult. So this guy knows his law. He knows it really, really well. And he asks Jesus a question to test him. So he's not, this is not an honest question that he's looking for an answer. He's trying to trap Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, if you're, Familiar with the Old Testament law like he is, you know that that's a super loaded question. There are over 600 commands in the Old Testament, uh, a little more than half of them negative, like thou shalt not do this, and then the others positive, thou shalt do this. And he comes to him and he's like, teacher, which is the greatest? Which is the great commandment, the great commandment in the law? And this is something that the Pharisees debated. They didn't all agree. So it's not like Jesus just has to give the answer they all give. he's good to go there was a lot of disagreement about that Uh, notice that he calls him teacher so but he's testing him so it's kind of this mocking like okay you've been in the temple all week you've been teaching people you've been answering questions so teacher if you're so wise if you're so learned if you know so much answer the simple question out of these 600 plus commands what's the great one Tell me, an expert who spent my whole life on this, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answers him. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And first there, it's if you read through the Old Testament, Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. So it's not the first commandment written in the Old Testament. So uh, first does not mean chronologically in the order written first. It means the greatest, the superior commandment. So this is the greatest commandment, the superior commandment, the first of importance. Which makes sense, right? What more, what's more important than to love God? And this love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, these aren't necessarily completely compartmentalized parts like, okay, I love God with my mind. I love God with my heart, my emotions, I love him with my soul. It's a little more, uh, there's a little bit of uh, flow between those three. So basically Jesus is saying, love God with all of your being, with everything you are, with every part of yourself, with everything you do and think and say. Love God with the totality of yourself. And then Jesus throws in a bonus. And he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I know you were just asking about the greatest, but as long as we're on the subject, I'll give you the second greatest. No extra charge. So, love your neighbor as yourself. And there he's quoting again from the Old Testament. That one he's quoting from Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. Uh, yeah. And so these sum up, these are the two greatest. Basically, love God and love people. That's what Jesus says. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? The greatest commandment is to love God. God. And the second greatest, to love people. And then verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it's not just that these two commandments summarize all those 600 plus commands, but all those commands depend on them. So any command you take from the Old Testament depends on this idea of loving God and loving people. They all hinge on those. They're dependent on them. They hang on those commandments. Uh, I've got a chart to illustrate this. So on the left, you've got the two great commandments, love God in blue, love people in green. On the right, you've got the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. And on the right there, you could plug in any of the 600 commands from the Old Testament, and it would fit under one of those categories for the great commands. I just did Ten Commandments, one, because they're a little more familiar, two, because it's a little easier to see than some of the more obscure commandments. Yeah, and it just fits so nicely in the chart. So, the first four there are the Ten Commandments you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or worship idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So, all four of those commands fit under that idea of loving God with all of yourself. And just to take one, the idol one, you shall not make or worship idols, it totally makes sense. If I'm spending time creating this idol out of wood or stone or metal and then I'm worshipping it, I'm obviously not fully devoted to loving God. I'm not giving all the love of all of my being to God because I'm giving some of it to this idol. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which covers honor your father and mother, and you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, or covet. And again, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's kind of self-explanatory. Uh, if I steal something from someone, I'm not loving them as I love myself. You know? So that's kind of that's just a nice example of how the other Old Testament commands fit within the category of the two great commandments. And you could do that with any of them, uh, because I don't have four hours to preach. We're not going to go through all six hundred, and because that would not be enjoyable. So. But if you felt the desire, you could do so. So, the two great commandments are both a summary and uh, a culmination, kind of, of all the Old Testament laws and the prophetic commands. So Jesus says, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So it's not just those 600 plus laws, but all the prophetic books, Isaiah and Daniel and so forth, everything that they proclaim in those books from God is also covered and summed up by the two great commandments. So all the Old Testament laws, all the prophets, everything they say, all of that can be summarized by love God with all of yourself, all that you are, and love people. And we see, so this Matthew encounter that Jesus has just had is also recorded in Mark. And in Mark, we actually see the response from the expert in the law. So Jesus responds with this, love God, love people, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the expert responds, you are right, teacher. A little bit of humbling there. It's like, wow, he answered well. You are right, teacher. To love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. If you've ever opened up your Bible to Leviticus and read through it or tried to read through it, it has chapter after chapter after chapter describing in detail sacrifices. All the different animals, the ways you have to kill the animals and sacrifice them, what parts, what order you do the different parts in, burn them on the altar, and it goes on and on and on. Just chapter after chapter, so much detail. And there is actually a lot of cool stuff to be seen in that, but uh, for the sake of time again, we're not going to do that. But... For an expert in the law who studied that their whole life, to declare and agree with Jesus, yeah, to love God and to love people is more than all of that. More than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings, more than those ten or a dozen chapters laying out in so much detail what the sacrifice should look like, it's more than that. To love God and to love people. So, the two great commandments are a summary of the Old Testament laws and prophets. But, and this is really important for us in uh, 2014, the two greatest commandments are not a summary of the gospel. The two greatest commandments are not a summary of the gospel. You may have heard, you may even have said to people, I know I have at uh, various earlier times in my life when people ask you, what's the gospel like? Just sum it up, explain it to me quick. And you say, oh, love God and love people. That's the gospel. Which, you know, it sounds catchy and very nice. Unfortunately, biblically, it's (laughs) just not true. Uh, The two great commandments are not a summary of the gospel. And we know that from a couple different places. Romans 3, 21 and 22, Paul writes, but now... So he's been talking about the law, and he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, but the gospel is manifested apart from the law and the prophets. So it's separate. So you've got love God and love people as this great summary of the law and the prophets, but the gospel is a separate thing. And so love God and love people is not a summary of the gospel. Like uh, the passage that Spencer read before the preaching today from Isaiah 43. In that passage, God says, I am doing a new thing. And the new thing that he's doing is Jesus, is the salvation, this gospel that's coming through Jesus' death and resurrection. He had done the law before, and now, and the law and the prophets bear witness to Christ. So it's not like they were flawed in of themselves; they were good. But God is now doing this new thing through Jesus. So then you might ask, well, what is a good summary of the gospel if it's not love God and love people? Give us some, you know, something, some good short summary for that. Uh, the verses right after twenty-one and twenty-two in Romans three—a summary of the gospel: for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, sin, a great definition of sin, is just to fall short of God, of his glory, of who he is, of what he's done. And so, if you have in your mind, or you're sharing with other people, the idea that the gospel is love God and love people, to do those things, you're going to fall short of that you're going to fall short of the degree to which God loves people and uh, loves himself within the Trinity. So certainly, even as sinful people, we can love people. Parents love their children. We love friends, things like that. It's not like love can't exist at all. But the degree to which God loves and the steadfastness with which God loves and the fact that he's always loving and loves just constantly on and on, uh, that is a level of love that we as people in our sin, are not able to attain to. We have sinned and fallen short. But, thankfully, there is the gospel. We are justified by his grace as a gift. A gift is something you don't earn. When you get a gift at Christmas, when you get a gift on your birthday, uh, unless it's a gift from your kids that your money paid for. but Just don't, we won't count that. But you get a gift from someone, it's not like you paid for it and wrapped it up and handed it to someone, and then they hand it to you. No, I got my gift. No, it's something that someone else got for you. It wasn't something you necessarily deserved. Because of the fact that they love you and care for you, they want to give you a gift, and so they do. They give you a gift. In the same way, God, who loves us, even though we were his enemies and against him and wanted to destroy him and hated him, he loved us, and he sent us a gift. The greatest gift, Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus came, and the gift that Jesus gave us was to die and to be raised from the dead. And in doing so, we are justified. He took our sin, and we take his righteousness. So the redemption in Christ Jesus, that is a summary of the gospel, not love God and love people. The the law commands love God and love people are apart from the gospel grace. However, Just as there are the two great commands in the law, there is actually a gospel command. So, if you didn't know that, and we're going to talk about that for a minute. 1 John 3, 23, John writes, And this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So, again, it's kind of a two-part thing. The second half should sound pretty familiar, love one another, which is the second greatest commandment. But it's interesting, the first commandment, love God, has been replaced with believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And this believe in the name is not just some kind of intellectual assent like, yeah, so I believe approximately 2,000 years ago a man lived who had the name Jesus. No big deal. To believe in the name biblically is to trust in the character and the reputation. So as an example, I had car trouble earlier this week and had to take it in and had to get new brakes put on my car. And that happened, and then I went to pick my car up. And when I did, I walked in, got the keys, walked out, uh, got in the car, started it up, and drove off. What I didn't do is walk in and say, you know, after they had described what they had done to the car, say, all right, I mean, you said you did that, but let's put it up on the lift, and actually, if you could take it all apart and do the whole job again with me watching, that would be great, because you know, I, how do I know you really did? I'm not really sure. Well, no, I trusted them that when they said that the brakes that were worn out had been replaced, that they actually replaced them and didn't just put nothing there or put cardboard there or leave the old ones there. And this trust isn't just some blind trust that I did in foolishness. I've been to them before. I know their character and reputation. The shop has fixed my car before. They've done a good job. I know other people who've gotten their car fixed there and who first recommended it to me. So this trust and this faith I have in their ability to fix my car Uh, is partly based on experience, partly based on the testimony of other people. And it's similar with Christ, that to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to believe in what he did on the cross, is not just this check your brain at the door type of thing, and like, well, I guess I'll just kind of believe this, and I hope it's true. No, it's based, there's experience that you can draw on as you have a relationship with Christ, and you see what he does. There's the testimony, both of other believers, other people in this room, who can proclaim what Christ has done and how his salvation has impacted them. The testimony in the Bible of those who actually saw Jesus and walked with him when he was on earth. So we have testimony, we have experience, we have God's word, the things God has said. Just like uh, when I went and got my car and the guy who handed me my keys said, this is what we did for your car, boom, boom, boom. Well, I trust his word. And when God says, this is what I've done for you through my son, boom, boom, boom. God is trustworthy, and we can believe his word. So that's what it means to believe in the name of his son, to trust in that character and reputation of God, and to love one another. So belief in Jesus Christ has replaced love for God in this gospel command. The greatest act of love for God, when it says in the passage earlier, when Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength, The greatest example of loving God is to believe in his son. And those who choose not to believe in their son, you can't not believe in the son and say you love God. Because if you've rejected the son, you've rejected God's great act of love. And you do not love God. You cannot love God and reject his son. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the Son, unlike a human son, is a perfect reflection of the Father. God the Father being completely good, Christ being completely good, it's a reflection of all that is good. And so to reject that, to reject the Son, is to reject the Father because of the relationship the Son and Father have, because the Son is the exact representation of the Father. So people who say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in the God of the Bible, you know, he seems all right, but Jesus, I don't know, like... Jesus is God? No, I don't think so. But I love God. It's like, no, you don't. You might think you love God, but you don't. If you reject the Father, you have rejected... uh, If you reject the Son, you've rejected the Father and you hate the Father. The greatest act of love for the Father is to believe in the Son. So Jesus has answered their question. They've declared from the passage we looked at in Mark that he's answered well. They agree with him. They're like, yeah, that's a really good answer. So 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, so they're still standing around. They've asked this question. Jesus has just answered it. Jesus asks them a question. Now when you come to Jesus and you're trying to be tricky and asking him a question and he responds with one, look out, you're about to get tricked. So we're going to do a quick review, even though we did this at the beginning. So Jesus asks them a question. The subjects Jesus has been asked about the last two weeks and then the first half of the passage we just looked at. He's been asked about taxes, which really they're not just asking about taxes, but they're asking about the relationship between the pagan government of Rome and their religious establishment of Israel. So kind of, what's the relationship between uh, politics and religion, between this pagan government that has authority over us and our nation, which is under God. Uh, they've been asked about resurrection, about death and life. In Jesus' answer for that, he also threw in some stuff about marriage. So they've talked about marriage, death, and life after death. And now the Old Testament law, which for the Jews, especially the religious rulers that Jesus is having most of his interaction with, uh, That was their big thing. Like, the law was the thing they studied all the time, that they spent their time on, that they thought about as they were going about their day to day lives. And so, that question for them was probably even bigger than the other two. It's like, tell us about the law. What's the best part of it? So, Jesus has asked these questions, and these aren't bad questions. These are good questions to ask. But even after those questions have been asked, and Jesus has answered them, he's going to ask a question. After all that's been said, there's still a question that needs to be asked. There's still a question they didn't get to. There is a greater question. So Jesus asks them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So the word Christ, uh, Messiah is interchangeable with that, so as I talk about it, I'll kind of go back and forth, but they mean the same thing. So, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Christ, the Messiah, was something that the Jews spent a lot of time thinking and talking about. One, because they were being oppressed by Rome, and the Messiah, from the Old Testament prophecies about him, was someone who was going to come and liberate them, who was going to give them back the land God had promised them, kick out all their enemies, put their enemies under their power, raise up a king again in Israel, and so they were going to be living the good life. So they were really looking forward to this. They, were, they wanted that Messiah. They wanted that Christ to come. So they spent a lot of time talking about that, a lot of time thinking about that. And there are some passages in the Old Testament that were confusing for them about the Messiah that they debated, that they didn't really understand. And Jesus also, so he says, what do you think about him? Whose son is he? Now, for Jews at that time, lineage and heritage was really important which we saw at the beginning of Matthew. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience when he wrote his gospel. The first chapter is just a lineage. It goes through all of Israel's great uh, uh, people and shows how Jesus Christ is in that lineage. So it says, Jesus Christ, the son of da-da-da-da, and goes back and back. The son, of Joseph, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of Abraham, just going back through Israel's history and showing how, yeah, Jesus is descended from all these great people in your history, all these heroes of your faith. So that was supremely important to them, that idea of sonship and lineage. So this question was huge for them. But they're like, yes, he asked one of the questions about the Messiah we can answer. Whose son is he? The son of David. Which, they said to him, the son of David. Which is a correct answer. Jesus was the Messiah, which is Jesus, was from the line of David. In Second Samuel uh, is where God speaks to David and where we get uh, this knowledge that the son is going to be in the line of David. So God is speaking to David and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promises David, you know, David, you're going to die someday. You're going to get old and die. But when you do, one of your offspring. I'm going to raise them up. They're going to come from your own body. So saying it's going to be a direct biological descendant, not like someone you adopted or uh, something like that. Your biological descendant is going to take your throne, and he's going to rule forever. I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. So the son of David, that's what they say. They're like, yeah, 2 Samuel, God promised this to David, the Messiah, the Christ, he's going to be the son of David. There, not only does the Old Testament testify to this fact, but so does Matthew. We've seen a couple times. These are just two examples. There's a few more. But Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, what does he write? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, even states, yeah, Jesus is the son of David. And then Matthew 21.9, this is as Jesus is going into Jerusalem during... Uh, Uh, on Palm Sunday, as we celebrate it, what is traditionally called his triumphal entry, so the beginning of the last week of his life, before everyone turns on him and kills him. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So Matthew, as the Gospel writer, acknowledges and states, yeah, Jesus is the Son of David. The crowds uh, in this... uh, Encounter also declare that he is the son of David. And you see at other points in the Gospel of Matthew that people are calling him the son of David, uh, calling out to him, asking for help as the son of David. So they answer the son of David. And they think, yeah, we got, I mean, we've got the Old Testament proof, blah, blah, blah. Like it's sealed up, done. But Jesus isn't done yet. He says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at your right hand sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet if then David calls him Lord how is he his son So this can be a little confusing for us kind of the way it's worded there's some cultural stuff that We don't necessarily get right off the bat, but there's a few things that are really important in this that kind of show what Jesus is getting at and what he's saying here. The first is that he says that David is in the Spirit. So he's saying David didn't just say this off the top of his head. This is God speaking through David. And the Pharisees would agree with that statement. They'd say, yeah, Uh, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110 here, the Lord said to my Lord, that part. And they would agree, yeah, David, when he wrote that psalm, that was under the inspiration of the Spirit. So the words that he's saying here are true. So we can't just say, well, this doesn't really fit, but maybe David was just saying something, so we'll just throw it out. It's like, nope, these are the words of God through David. And then David, who at the time he wrote this is king of Israel, calls this future Messiah, this offspring of his, Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And verse 45, Jesus. that's kind of the crux of Jesus' question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So at this time in Israel, with this culture, there was this idea that uh, the father was greater than the son. So you would have sons, and they would be like the father, but the father was greater. And so you see that in the Gospels, people will talk about Abraham as the greatest. It's like, yeah, Abraham is our father, our, our uh, <coughs> excuse me, Abraham is our father. You know, he's the one we come from. He's the greatest, you know. He was the one who did all this great stuff that God made all these promises to. And then David, the greatest king that Israel had. He's our number one king. And so any king that comes after him, even Solomon, who the kingdom of Solomon was a more prosperous kingdom than the kingdom of David. There was more peace. There was more wealth. There was more just kind of relaxation and enjoyment of life. But people still, when they talked about it, would talk about David as the greater king. Because he was first, Solomon was his offspring, so he couldn't be as great as David. So you've got this problem because David, talking about someone who comes after him, calls him Lord, indicating a position of authority over him. And they're like, how can that be? How can the greatest king we've ever had have someone who's his descendant be over him? How can the Lord be both lesser as a son and descendant coming after but also be greater be lord over david how can he be both after david because he's going to be a descendant he wasn't born yet at the time that david says this but if you read all of psalm 110 it talks about stuff that this lord is already doing as if he already exists so it's how can he come after david and yet be existing right now when david's still alive and you know doesn't have this offspring on the throne this is confusing so the answer, of course, to how this can be is Jesus, that Jesus, being both God and man, is both, uh, at least from their perspective, in a sense, lesser than David, because he came after him, a long time after him, he was his descendant, but he's superior to David. So in Jesus Christ in his humanity comes after David as a descendant, they would look at him and say, oh yeah, you're a son of David, but you're lesser because he was the great king. But Jesus, in his divinity, because he's God and man, is, of course, superior to David. And as God existed from eternity past, so existed long before David did. So that's the answer, that how can this Lord be both lesser and greater, be both after and before? Well, by being both God and man. So that in man, as a man, he comes after David. Uh, He, in the Jews' eyes, would be lesser than David of course, he's not actually lesser than David, even in his humanity. He's greater than David. He's a better king than David was. But he's also greater and before David as God. And so that's the solution. That's the answer, the piece that they couldn't wrap their minds around. It's like, how can this be? How can this be possible? We don't know. We don't have any answer to this. And the answer is Jesus. You know, Jesus is saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, how is this possible? Oh, wait, it's possible in me. Because I'm God and man. Because I come from David, but I existed before him. Because I'm his son, but I'm also his Lord. And their response, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And this is the last question you see anyone ask Jesus in the Gospels. At least in this context. After he's raised from the dead, his disciples ask him some questions. But in terms of this idea of trying to trick him, trying to figure out where his weak spot is, trying to show that he's not really who he said he was, this is the end. We don't see the Pharisees or Sadducees ask anything else of Jesus in this gospel. He give, you know, They've asked him these questions, he's responded. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to pull out the big guns. What do you think about the Christ? All right, good answer. What about this? And the response, we don't have a clue. We don't understand how that's possible. All those questions they were asking Jesus about government and religion, about life and death, about the law, and this is the question they should have been asking him. The question they should have asked Jesus is, Jesus, tell us about the Messiah. Whose son is he? Tell us about the Christ. How is it possible that he can be both Lord and descendant of David? Explain it to us. You're a teacher. You've given us great answers. This is the question they should have asked, but they didn't ask it. And even now, when Jesus asks it, the response that they should have given is, we don't know. Do you know? You just gave a great answer to the last question. Can you explain this to us? But they don't do it. They're just silent and they walk away. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That is the greatest question that you will ever ask. It's not the only important question. It's not the only question worth asking for sure. But the greatest question you will ever ask is, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is he? Because the answer to that question affects everything else in your life. It affects all your day-to-day life. It affects what you think about God. It affects your relationship with God. And to reject the Christ is to reject God. To reject the love of God. The greatest question that we can ask is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And this is not just a one and done question. Like, oh yeah, I asked that question a lot of years ago. I became a Christian. Now I'm done with that question. No, that's a question we ask every day. Today, as I woke up, who is the Christ to me Today? Is he still that Lord? Is he still that Savior? Or is he just today some guy like, yeah, that was great before, but I've kind of got it today, I'll just handle it on my own. Every day are we asking that question, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about him? The second thing, are you obeying the gospel command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love each other? And the order there is supremely important. The belief in Christ comes first, and the love for others flows out of that. If you try and reverse those and love people first, it's not going to work. Because the power to love people, there are some people who are easy to love. You know, We all have friends and family that we find easier to love. Certainly there are moments where it's hard to love even those people, but generally it's like, yeah. You know, my parents, I love my parents. There are times where it's a little annoying, but generally speaking, they're easy to love, and they love me. And then there are those people who are not so easy to love. It's like, ooh, ooh. To love you, that's, I don't know, maybe I'll just hang out with these people who are easy to love. The power to love the people who are hard to love comes through the gospel. The power of God who loved people who hated him Everyone hated him, and God loved them. He loved the people who were unlovable. He loved me, and he loved you, and we were the unlovable people. So the belief in Christ comes first. So have you asked that question? Have you obeyed that gospel command? Jesus, we thank you that... uh, You came and you died for us, that you saved us from what we couldn't save ourselves from. I pray that everyone here would have that question and that command bouncing around in their head this week, that uh, whether we've known you for dozens of years or whether we don't know you, that we'd be asking that question, what do I think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And that gospel command to believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Thank you for your word. Amen. So, today, being the first.